So what in the world have we been talking about this past month? I'm telling you, I, I, I've gone away for a couple of weeks on summer vacation and I'm here and we're having conversations around here about how, you know, the Bible might not be, you know, altogether entirely perfectly true. We're talking about how uh, the divine word of God might be fallible. I mean, really, these are the these are the conversations that we've been having these past few weeks. Uh, you know, I've talked to a number of you. You're asking me questions, and uh, you know, frankly, the only question that I, I've been having, been running through my head, is uh, might put a little too much sunscreen on this summer. Like, he's looking pale. I'm wondering, maybe, you know, I I, I can't figure it out. Maybe it's the maybe it's that vegetarian diet that Krista's been feeding him. Maybe he's just lacking the mental faculty requisite proteins or something. I mean, you know, they, they, they say that when the cat's away, the mics will play. But I, I'm, now, now you've got me worried about how he's going to wrap the series up. Like he's going to say that the Disney princesses aren't real or something. And it's just going to break my heart. I just, what are we going to do with them? I, I, don't, I don't know. But, you know, all kidding aside, uh, I am very grateful for the work that Mike has put in. Uh, to helping us journey this past month. We have talked for some time about how we get this sense that much of the controversy uh, about faith and about the Bible, uh, not just the division within the church, but the polarization of the church, you know, with the watching world, in a lot of ways has less to do with what people believe about the Bible and way more to do with the different approaches that people have to the Bible, the different approaches people have to determining what it is that the Bible says. And so we thought that we could invest some time in the summer to studying how to actually study or how to approach the Bible. And Mike's been teaching us that there are, you know, more and less right or more or less proper ways to do that. And if you've been around, you know that he's anchored this whole conversation in the dynamics of the Bible that are both fully divine and fully human. We believe that about Jesus, too, that Jesus was both God and man. He was both fully divine and fully human. But I don't know if even in Jesus, we fully embraced the human side of him. You know, his full humanity, that he was both sinless and perhaps not perfect. You know, I, I'm thinking about it this way. I'm playing golf this afternoon. I don't play much golf. This will be my second round this summer. And, and I wonder sometimes, you know, what would Jesus' golf score have been? I, I don't know about you, but I don't think Jesus would have scored 18. I think that Jesus' golf score would probably be very similar to mine. The difference between Jesus and me on the golf course would not be our golf score. It would probably be the number of curse words that we would use when we're in the brush trying to find our ball after we've duffed, you know, scoring that high golf score. And... In, in that same way that we follow and embrace a Jesus that is both fully divine and fully human, we've been learning that the Bible is the same thing. That on the one hand, the Bible is you know, fully divine. And I got to say, Mike has said it every week. He's quoted 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, 
rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And you got to know that around here, we believe that to the core of our being. We believe that this book is divinely inspired by God as his word to humanity for all time. To cast his vision for our lives. That it's completely divine. At the same time, we also believe that the way God developed his word was not by taking certain random people and inducing them in comas or some form of unconscious state where he could kind of gyrate them into some epileptic seizure type activity so that they would scribble down his very thoughts. No, we actually believe that God gave us his word through the inspiration, the, the, the whispering, the, the thought development of Human beings of human authors writing to human audiences in human eras of history for their human purposes to make their human points that God was breathing into them. We believe that this book is both fully divine and fully human. And as a result, we've been discussing some of the implications of that, that I think for many of us have been freeing, but I know for some of us have been kind of equilibrium altering. Because in appreciating the full humanity of the Bible, not just its full divinity, um, we're able to kind of free ourselves from forcing the Bible to be and do everything that we might need it to be and do, that the biblical authors never really intended it to be and do. So we've been talking the last number of weeks about how we don't need the Bible to be a 21st century science textbook because it was never intended by the biblical authors who were writing back in those days to be one. We don't even need the Bible to be an accurate historical chronological account. We don't need to be, it to be a history textbook because the point, especially in the narrative sections in the Old and New Testament, the point of the biblical authors is found in the punch of the story, not so much in how they configure the details to make that point. Last week, we learned that we don't even need the Bible, you know, from front to back to be a theology textbook. Not every comment, not every episode needs to make a, a full theological statement. Rather, these authors often, you know, Mike was teaching us, serve to kind of stimulate a spiritual conversation, to get a conversation going about God and who he's like and what it would mean to follow him more fully. And today, we want to continue down this road of liberating ourselves from making the Bible need to be things that maybe the original authors never intended it to be um, by talking about how, you know, we treat the Bible so often as a rule book. Talked about a science book, a history book, even a theology book. Today we want to talk about a rule book. And, you know, I know for many of us we're familiar with Psalm 119. It says God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And for many of us, we would love nothing more than for the Bible to be that. To kind of give us guidance step by step of the way. And just kind of, in simple terms, just tell us, just tell us the rules. To live a happy and healthy and kind of a wholesome life. If, if the Bible front to back could just tell us the rules, you know, it, it would be great. And just kind of clarify things for us. And, you know, today I want to talk about some cautions in doing that. And so if you're taking notes, uh, you can write down four things. We're going to talk about four cautions in approaching the Bible as a rule book, you know, in all circumstances. Okay, so here we go. Uh, point number one, uh, kind of start us off, is that not everything that we think is a rule in the Bible is actually a rule. Not every rule is a rule. And that poses a little bit of a problem because 
Not every singular idea contained in the scriptures is intended to be a commandment or instruction to be directly followed or obeyed all the time. And I'll explain what I mean uh, with a little illustration. Suppose that you're hanging around your water cooler at work or your uh, mailboxes uh, in your neighborhood or maybe even in the lobby outside of the auditorium of your location after a, after a church service. And you're talking to someone who's saying some stuff that doesn't totally make sense. You know, no, you're not talking to Mike. Well, we've made enough fun of him. But, you know, someone who, who you know, isn't just, isn't just saying things that are a bit weird. They're saying things that are outright, you know, untrue. They're, they're, they're flawed. They're, they're, they're foolish. They're talking nonsense. And you're wondering, you know, how to relate to this person. Thankfully, because you're so, you know, acquainted with the scriptures, you remember Proverbs 26, verse 4. And it says this. It says, do not answer a fool according to his folly or you yourself will be just like him. And aren't you glad you remembered that because you were tempted to say something, but you thought, you know what? I don't want to get caught into this argument and this foolish debate. So I'm just going to let this person speak and say their nonsense and let them dig their own grave. Only over time, that's not what happens. And over time, this person continues to talk nonsensically and, and share these foolish ideas, you know, maybe about life or politics or something. And uh, other people, instead of correcting them, they actually believe them. And they start to kind of follow them. And this person, instead of silencing themselves, they only get more confident and gain more momentum with the influence that they're having over others. And you're wondering what happened. Why didn't that biblical instruction work? And so you go back to Proverbs 26 to try to see if maybe you read it wrong and you realize you didn't read it wrong, that it says, do not answer a fool according to his folly. But then you read on to the very next verse where it says this in Proverbs 26, 5. It says, answer a fool according to his folly or he will be wise in his own eyes. Proverbs 26, 4 says, do not answer a fool according to his folly. Verse 5 says, answer a fool according to his folly. So the question is, what do you do in response to someone who's talking nonsense and acting foolishly? Do you not answer them? Do you answer them? What do you do? Well, the biblical answer, and this kind of, you know, shakes our equilibrium a little bit. The biblical answer is, it depends. It depends. And the reason it depends is because neither of these verses were intended by the original author to be direct commandments or instructions to be obeyed for all time. Both of these verses are, as the book title that they're found in, they're called Proverbs. They're a style of literature that provides general wisdom. Proverbs are general truisms that are generally true. Not necessarily true for all time. They're generally true. And the way Proverbs are intended to be treated is that they're intended to be built into our conscious and subconscious so that we can accrue that wisdom and we can pull it out when it's, when it's needed in a, in a certain time. And the biblical author, especially in linking these two Proverbs together, these two general truisms, is saying that it actually depends and you've got to kind of take a case-by-case -case approach to employ discernment and wisdom as to whether it's better to not respond or respond to someone who's talking foolishness. And it's more because of the nature of the style of literature, what we call the literary genre, 
that we can understand that because it's through the literary genre that this and so many biblical authors chose to make their points inspired by God. See, the Bible is not just a rule book from front to back. The Bible contains stories. It contains parables. It contains proverbs. It contains poetry. Uh, it contains prophecy and metaphor. And sometimes it contains law. It contains instruction. Sometimes it contains letters to churches. And, and it contains instruction. But, but it doesn't always contain instruction. And because of that, we can't treat every single idea that we find in the Bible like it's a rule to be applied and obeyed for all time. In fact, I heard a story once of someone who did that to their own peril almost. You know, they, they approached God and they said, God, you know, I want to follow you fully. I'm going to open up your word and whatever it says, I'm going to do. And so they opened it up and they found themselves in the New Testament, one of the gospel accounts, and their finger landed on this verse and it said, then Judas hanged himself. And they thought, whoa, must have made a mistake, God. Okay, um, I'm going to try this again. So they closed it up. They opened it up again, closed their eyes, put their finger down. Again, it was another gospel account. And they read the verse and it said, Then Jesus said, what you will do, uh, go and do likewise. And he thought, whoa. I don't know if I want to do that. Okay, God, I'm going to give you one last chance. And, and so he closed the book again opens up the Bible, puts his finger down. Third time, he's in the Gospels again. This time, it's Jesus again saying, what you must do, do quickly. And he realized, you know, this isn't working for me. And the reason, the reason it wasn't working for him is because none of those snippets found in the New Testament gospel accounts that are written as narratives, none of those snippets in narratives are intended to be standalone points. They're not intended to be instructions. They're details and, you know, little kind of tidbits that are woven together by the biblical author in that narrative to make a point whose punch is in the punch of the story. That's how God inspires the biblical authors to write. And so we need to be cautious in treating the Bible as a rule book because not everything that we might think is a rule is actually a rule. Point number two, um, in treating the Bible as a rule book, let's be careful because not every rule is consistent. Not every rule is consistent. The Bible does not say the same thing about certain ideas consistently throughout the scriptures. And so we can get tripped up if we treat it as a for all time rule. I'll give you another example here. Um, the Bible at a number of different occasions talks to people of faith about eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. So in Exodus 34, 15, for example, it says there, be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land. For when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. Okay, don't eat the food of people who have sacrificed that food to their idols. These idol worship people, don't, don't eat that spiritually contaminated food. So the law teaches 
Well, then in the New Testament, you might think that that's kind of outdated. But in the early church, we see that that law was actually upheld. And as the first century church was figuring out how to integrate non-Jewish believers into the Christian family and, and recognizing that Gentiles were converting to follow Jesus, the leadership council at Jerusalem decided on this. This is their report back to them. In Acts 15, 29, it says, You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols. From blood and from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality, you will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So this Old Testament law didn't get written off in the New Testament. In fact, it actually got upheld. Or at least for a time. Because later on, when the Apostle Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, he says this in 1 Corinthians 8. He says, so then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. You know, food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. He's saying, you know what? It's not that big a deal. In fact, his message in this section of text is that the only determinant about whether you should eat meat sacrificed to idols or not is whether or not it's a big deal or an issue of conscience for someone around you. And you should pay respect to the consciences around you and be sensitive to them in the decisions that you make. You're not just making a decision for yourself. You're considering those around you. And then, to top it off, he teaches something a little bit different in Romans chapter 14 about this, where he says the one who eats, and he's talking about meat sacrificed to idols, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat anything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them both. And what Paul's teaching here is that no matter which conviction you have, it really doesn't matter. You can actually believe both things. It's okay to believe one or believe the other. What we're to be is unified and respectful of one another, even if we disagree. We're to embrace and accept one another, not conditional on our agreement. And so you wonder, you know, kind of bottom line, can you and I have surf and turf tonight? And do we have to worry about whether it's been sacrificed to idols? Well, appreciate that the Bible says different things throughout it. And Mike tapped into this a little bit last week when he talked about progressive revelation, how the truth of the scripture on some ideas actually evolves and develops over the course of the biblical arc. And all I'm going to say for today is that when it comes to wanting the Bible to be a rule book, let's be very careful that we're not overly simplistic and just grab hold of a single commandment or thought and think that's everything that the Bible says. We need to actually consider what's called the whole counsel of God, the entire biblical arc, so that we have a thorough understanding and approach of what the whole scripture and God through all of the biblical authors said when it came to a certain rule or instruction that we may want to follow. Don't assume that it's that quick and easy and convenient. It takes some respect of the kind of developing nature of the scriptures, some respect of the complexity of the way that God weaved together the Bible through these human authors to really understand his truth to us in many ways. Point number three when it comes to treating the Bible like a rule book is that not every rule is relevant. Not every rule is relevant. Not every rule that we see in the Bible speaks specifically to our context today. Even though the Bible is for all time, each individual idea isn't necessarily equally as relevant for all time. I'll give you another example right from the scriptures. Um, again, this is kind of a, a food issue. In uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 9, 
God is talking to the Israelites about how to prepare the Passover meal. And he says there, do not eat the Passover meal. Do not eat the Passover meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Okay, simple enough. Don't eat it raw, don't boil it, but roast it over fire. Interesting thing is to a different era of Israelite, God said something very different in Deuteronomy 16, verse 8. It says there, boil the Passover meal and eat it at the place designated by God, your God. Then at daybreak, turn around and go home. And the interesting part here isn't that isn't just that God said to boil it where he said before to not boil it. The previous time he said to eat it in their homes and this time he said to eat it in the temple and then go home afterwards. And then to complicate this even further in 2 Chronicles 35, 13, it says the Israelites roasted the Passover animals over the fire as prescribed and they boiled the holy offerings in pots, cauldrons, and pans and served them quickly to all the people. In one place, we see the Israelites instructed to not boil it, but roast it. In another place, we see them instructed to boil it. And then in another place, we see them roasting it and boiling it. So again, you're wondering, like, should I go to the keg or not? Like, what do I, <laughs> what, what am I supposed to do here? And we need to appreciate that each of these laws, each of those laws was specifically given to Israelites in the context of where they were at. And it's only as you understand their context that you can actually draw out the principle or kind of the, the spirit of the law and kind of hear from God to apply it to our context where it's relevant today. And I don't want to get into the specifics of this. We don't have time, but you know, suffice to say when it, when it comes to this, you know, preparing the Passover meal, um, there were some times in the history of Israel where they had a temple and sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they had a tabernacle and sometimes... So sometimes the only place that they could go was their homes to eat it. And sometimes a more suitable worship setting was to actually share that meal in the, in the temple. Sometimes they were in places where water was in abundance. And sometimes they weren't. And so sometimes those laws were given for purely pragmatic reasons. You know, they're, they're not one for all time laws. They were contextualized. And in many cases, it's only as you understand the context into which the biblical author is writing that you can actually reconcile what it is that they're saying and make it relevant to your life or to our day. And I find that this is where we get into all kinds of, you know, argument and trouble because we'll pull out ideas, uncontextualized and you know, think that that's the truth of God's word for all time. And people will say, you know, when it comes to baptism, this is what the Bible says. And someone else will say, well, no, this is the, what the Bible says. And you think that they're both right, but each, each of them thinks that they're wrong. You know, one person will say, well, you know, God's people were led this way. So this is how you should govern or, or organize a church. And someone else will say, no, church governance is supposed to work this way. And someone will point to this verse in the Bible and say, you know, how, how, can, you, how can you read this verse and allow women to exercise leadership? And other people will say, well, you're crazy. The Bible says this and this and this and this about, you know, women and the spiritual gift of leadership. And, and the problem is that in many cases, we're not, we're taking sort of the, the what the scriptures are saying at face value without actually understanding the context behind them to really accurately understand what God is intending to say through the human authors. And so just a word of caution that I think all of us could do to be a little more humble when we approach the scriptures and a little more vigilant to actually study them and to try to get under the hood of what the, the context and the, the, the environment into which the author was speaking, what was going on, and try to do a little more study in that sense. 
And not to be so arrogant and simplistic as to say, oh, well, that's what the Bible says. Obviously, it's clear. There are many instances where without the context, the Bible is actually extremely unclear. And let's just have the humility to acknowledge that as we journey in understanding and following the Bible better. Finally, uh, last idea when it comes to our propensity to treat the Bible as a rule book. Let's appreciate most of all that Jesus valued ethics over rules. Jesus valued ethics over rules. That's not to say that Jesus denounced the rules or instructions or law that was in the scriptures. In fact, in Matthew 5, Jesus was quoted as saying this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus saw his purpose as actually kind of being the culmination of the full manifestation of all that was taught in the Old Testament Jewish law. With Jesus, though, in his teaching, he took it a level further. And he would take Jewish law and actually bring a deeper heart level to the conversation. He took it further than what the, the Jewish law actually went. Look at, as an example, in Matthew 5, 21, he says, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, he's quoting Old Testament Jewish law, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You know, not only in his most famous sermon, but many other times when Jesus was teaching, he would say that. You've heard it said, but I say to you something deeper. And the heart of the matter was a matter of the heart to Jesus. So when he was talking about things like murder or adultery or, you know, tithing or, or you know, things like that. He, he would actually make those issues deeper heart issues and talk about anger, talk about lust, talk about faithfulness, talk about greed, talk about the things deep within people's hearts, not just the law that lived on the surface. And to summarize all of that, he created a bit of an ethic we call the, the, the love ethic that he, he cites here in Matthew chapter 22, where he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Again, he's quoting Old Testament Jewish law. He says, this is the first and the greatest commandment of all. And the second he says is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, he says. All the law and the prophets, all the other laws, they actually gain meaning and kind of hang on this love ethic of loving God and loving people with everything that you've got. And so what Jesus did is not only kind of draw the law deeper into people's hearts, but he took the rules and kind of prioritized them. He kind of ranked them according to this love ethic. And in Jesus' day, that's what kind of made him so contentious with the rule keepers. Because instead of arguing with them about the rules, Jesus would consistently bring the conversation deeper to a heart level and higher to an ethical level about love. We saw this a few months ago when we were studying the episode where Jesus and his disciples were accused of breaking the Sabbath law because they were eating grain in a grain field. They were being accused of gleaning and, and you know, doing work to harvest that grain. And remember in Matthew 12, 7, what Jesus said, he said, if you'd known what these words mean, he's quoting Old Testament prophet here, that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He says, you would not have condemned the innocent. And he wants these rule keepers to understand that God cares about a heart of mercy and compassion and love more than he cares about a sacrificial fanatical commitment to rules. That there's actually something God cares about more than just the ascribing to and knowing all the rules. Which is why the New Testament 
authors say that as well, teach that as well. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the apostle Paul says himself, if I understood all of God's secret plans, I possessed all knowledge, I knew all the rules and I knew them completely. And he says, if I had such faith that I could move mountains, I believed in all the rules and I lived them out faithfully, but didn't love others, he said, spiritually speaking, I would be nothing. It's one thing to know the rules. It's one thing to, you know, want to follow them properly, to, to, to be right in that sense. But as they say, if you're right, but you're rude, you're wrong. And there are actually deeper heart issues that Jesus cares about more and higher ethics of love that he cares about more than just being sticklers for the rules. So for those of us who are tempted to treat the Bible exclusively as a rule book, because God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, I guess the question at the end of this conversation is what do we do? How do we approach the Bible to be that lamp and light to guide our lives? Well, if you're struggling with this today, you know, seeing as we have a penchant for rule keeping, I thought that I would wrap things up uh, by giving us five quick rules to summarize this conversation. Five rules for keeping the rules when it comes to the scriptures. So if you're taking notes, you can scribble these down. First of all, consider the literary genre. Consider the style in which the biblical author wrote. Because the style in which they wrote is part of how they made their point. And be considerate of that, not ignorant of that. Number two, consider the whole counsel of God. Don't just pluck singular ideas out and postage stamp your, your agenda or your wishes. Consider what God says throughout the scriptures about a subject and be respectful of the complexity in discerning that. Number three, consider the cultural context. Understand, study, do the due diligence to learn who the writer was, who they're writing to, what the circumstances were into which they were writing so that you can appreciate what they're saying and be humble about it. Don't arrogantly assume that, you know, what you read on the surface is what God's saying. No, it's not always that simple. Let's have some humility in that. Uh, number four, consider the heart behind the rule. Be focused on, as Jesus wants us to be, the deeper heart issues and the higher ethic of love. And then number five, I added this for bonus points. Consider the change required in your own life. Consider after all that, after all that, what God is actually saying to you, how he wants you to be different and try to be faithful to that. Because the truth of the matter is that when all's said and done, as it's been said, when all's been said and done, a lot more has been said than done. And you guys have to know that while we got into this series because we felt that, you know, one of the main issues in the church today, one of the main Sources of division in the church, I said this earlier, and the sources of polarization with the church and the watching world isn't so much what people believe about the Bible, but how people approach what we understand and believe about the Bible differently. And it kind of drove us into this series that, that we care about that, and that's why we're doing this series. But I got to tell you personally, gang, I... I I feel like not only inside the church, but outside the church, what people care about a lot more than you and I gaining and growing in our biblical literacy is actually reducing and minimizing our biblical hypocrisy. I've said this before, more important than knowing the scriptures is actually living out with integrity what we know. 
So as we try to be more diligent, try to be more wise, try to be more faithful students of God's word, let's make a commitment together as a church family to not just be hearers and students of it, but doers as well, okay? Let's pray. God, we're here and acknowledge again your word as your inspired divine design for our lives. And we want to surrender to it. We want to align to it. We want to be obedient to it. We want to live it out to its full fruition. And I know for each of us today, there are ways in which we would love nothing more than your guidance and wisdom from your word to speak practically and real time into struggles and choices and challenges that we're facing. I pray, God, as we seek to do that, though, as we seek to take your word and apply it to our lives, our settings, our families, our contexts, that we would do that with the wisdom of your spirit, that we would do that in a more appropriate way, respecting the way that you actually convened the writing of your scriptures through the inspiration of these human authors to human audiences in human eras in history. And help us to have the diligence, the humility, the respect, the focus, and the faithfulness to be good hearers of your word. But then, God, by your spirit, to be good doers of it in those choices, in those places in our lives where we desperately need it. So speak to us now. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.